0: This podcast is part of the SJ Network. Go to s-j-network.com for more great podcasts and for contact information on publicist Steve Joyner. Dylan, I don't think it's a good idea to take out the Sherpa's Aston Martin for a test drive. He won't mind. Maybe I'll end up in Stephen Rubin's James Bond movie encyclopedia. Watch how fast I can make it go. But you're only a voiceover bot. You don't even have a driver's license. Not a problem, I'll just take it around this corner. Oh, my. I've never seen that type of damage done to a Matchbox car. I guess this means I won't be in Steven Rubin's book. Hi there. Attention Rebels of the Lution. today's podcast is being brought to you by Audible. You can get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com Sherpa. There are over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. And now Mr. Bruce will lead you into the Sherpa Chalet. As a reminder, All of the Sherpa's bad jokes can be purchased at the gift shop near the exit.
1: Coming to you from Sherpa Chalet in beautiful downtown Mount Podcastia, it's time for entertainment interviews in the Sherpa screening room. Grab an aisle seat and a bucket of popcorn, but don't crunch too loud or you'll miss the show. Now, here's your host, Jim the Podcast Sherpa.
0: Hey there, Rebels, and welcome to the Sherpa Screening Room, a presentation of too many podcasts. And you know who this guy is behind the mic? This guy over here. Hello. Knock, knock. It's me, Jim the Podcast Sherpa. Your personal podcast Sherpa, of course. And we've got an author this week, and he's a really fascinating guy. He's got a lot of cool stories. I never thought that you'd listen to a guy was actually, written two encyclopedias, and they're both interesting. One of them was about the Twilight Zone, and one of them is about James Bond. And his name is Stephen J. Rubin. He's got a really fascinating story, and we talked a lot about Bond and some of the other things that he's done in his life. Really fascinating guy. I think you're gonna like this interview. Super nice, had a lot of fun. I even broke out some of the impressions on this one. Oh no! Run for the hills. So his name, Stephen J. Rubin. Author of the James Bond Movie Encyclopedia. And let's have a listen right about now. Hello there, Rebels, and welcome to the Sherpa screening room. My name is Sherpa James, the podcast Sherpa. We, of course, know what Sherpa stands for. It's so happy everything's running perfectly awesome. <laughs> the only reason why I'm introducing myself like that is we have a very special guest tonight. He is an author, a film historian, a producer, screenwriter, and a documentarian. And he's written nine books, and he's got one coming out called The James Bond Movie Encyclopedia. Say hello
1: to Mr. Stephen J. Rubin. How you doing, Steve? Steve. I'm great, Jim. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I, I always thought the word Sherpa had something to do with the Himal- Himalayas. And now I've learned my uh, new lesson of the day.
0: <laughs> well, it's got multiple meanings. I know somebody called me up and they said, doesn't it have something to do with the inside of a jacket? I was like, shh, don't say anything.
1: <laughs> we'll keep it our little secret. You know, word, word words are funny. You know, you go your whole life thinking about certain words and you have no idea where they come from. For instance, the word hooker and hookers are kind of associated with bond in a certain way. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I learned that from the civil war history, there was a union general named Joseph hooker who had uh, his base of operations in new Orleans early on in the war. And he was known to hang around with some, a lot, a lot of women of the night. And they became known as Hooker's Legion. And over the course of time, the term hooker has now obviously become uh, a term for prostitute, but it dates back to the Civil War.
0: Wow, that, that is a little interesting tidbit there, Steve. You usually you were like a history guy, right? that was why really the fascination with encyclopedias. Oh, yeah, yeah. Everything.
1: I mean, in, in in high school, I started out as a math major. I thought about becoming an aeronautical engineer because I liked airplanes, <laughs> but I had virtually no ability to draw a straight line with any degree of acumen. Uh, I was not, was not going to be a draftsman or an architect. And eventually, uh, my math acumen, which started out pretty good, I was good in early algebra. But as you got into later algebra, forget it. So I became a history major. And when I got to college, I got to UCLA, I became a reporter on the Daily Bruin. So you know, I was getting into interviewing people. And I was there at a very interesting time. It was the it was the Watergate era. And it was the era of Woodward and Bernstein and all that stuff. And it was very, very inspiring. Uh, Just a lot of the stories I was writing, I remember interviewing the first prisoners that came back from Vietnam. And that was just absolutely fascinating. So when I got out of college, uh, I was thinking of going into television news as a journalist, and I was dissuaded. Um, and they, I wanted to write a book because I had, had all this writing experience. And they say, write about subjects that are of interest to you. And I was interested in films about World War II. And uh, obviously the film business and uh, my film school, because I did not go to postgraduate film school, I started interviewing the filmmakers who made the classic World War II movies going back to the 40s. Films like Battleground, 12 O'Clock High, The Longest Day. Uh, Hell is for Heroes, Patton, and I got I got uh, a, a lot of interviews done. And at the same time, I became a staff writer for a magazine in Chicago called Cine Fantastique, which was the first journal that covered science fiction, fantasy, and horror films. I did an article on a 1954 movie called Them, which was about giant ants in the New Mexico desert. Classic. Sure. And uh, I wrote I interviewed the screenwriter who happened to be a World War II veteran. I interviewed the director. And but the key factor came when I went over to Warner Brothers and I was able to get them to let me use some behind the scenes stills. Now, someone no one had ever seen a behind the scenes still from the movie. Them, we published three or four of them in the magazine. And we got lots of fan letters. So it encouraged the magazine, encouraged me. I ended up doing a very long retrospective on The Day the Earth Stood Still, the original with Michael Rennie. I did one on Forbidden Planet with Leslie Nielsen and War of the Worlds with Gene Barry. And I got tremendous feedback from these articles. I made almost no money from them. I learned early on that if I wanted to be in show business, I wasn't going to make any money as a journalist. So uh, what happened was in the late 70s, I had returned from a, a vacation in Europe and A friend of mine encouraged me to to make the rounds, and I saw an ad in the Hollywood Reporter. They wanted somebody to go to science fiction conventions, you know, the comic cons of the day. Uh, I applied for this job. It turned out that Phil Kaufman, the film director, had directed the, the remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And he was friendly with George Lucas, who had, had obviously the big mega hit the previous year, Star Wars. And he learned from George that to promote the movie Star Wars, he sent somebody around to all these science fiction conventions with a presentation, gave out some freebies, did a little talk. And Phil Kaufman wanted to do the same thing for Body Snatchers, so they hired me to go to like conventions all over the United States. I was on the road for 10 months. And I promoted everywhere. It was my first trip to New York. I got a chance to to promote this movie at the Sheraton Center Hotel and 7th Avenue. And uh, I had a ball. I met a lot of people. And I didn't realize at that time, but basically I was in a PR function. I was operating as an advance man. So I would go around the country. And then when I came back to California, when I was done with the tour... I ended up going to work in a public relations agency. And that started me on a 25-year career as a film publicist. Uh, I would actually work uh, all different jobs. I worked in agencies. I worked at studios. uh, But I became what they call a feature unit publicist, where I'd actually be on crew. Funny thing is, I usually got assigned to the lousy sequel to a good movie. (laughs) So I worked on Porky's 2. I worked on Weekend at Bernie's 2. I worked on Eddie and the Cruisers too. I worked on Honey, I Blew Up the Kid. which was actually a pretty good movie. That was the sequel to Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. So I was doing all this PR and then uh, eventually I went to work at Showtime in the early 90s. And Showtime, I kind of became more of an executive where I wasn't the field publicist. I was actually hiring the publicist for the, the network at that time. And we were making a lot of original movies. And we were making so many original movies. I started thinking that, why don't I produce one of these? I mean, I think I've got some acumen. So I got I, I worked with the, the actor Joe Montana, mm-hmm. And Joe Montana and I share a great common uh, love of the Chicago Cubs baseball team. We bond over Cubs, and I asked him why they never made a movie out of his play Bleacher Bums, which was this wonderful baseball play that appeared in L.A. for 11 years. It's all about the fans who sit out in right field and root for the Cubs. It's kind of a kind of a bleacher play. A lot of fun. And I eventually got the rights to that. And it turned out that the head of our network was a big baseball fan. So I made my producing debut in 2002 on a baseball comedy called Bleacher Bums. We had Wayne Knight from Seinfeld. Mm-hmm. We had Brad Garrett from Everyone Loves Raymond. Uh, we had Peter Riegert from Animal House. We had Charlie Durning. It was a lot of fun. The only thing we didn't have was cooperation from the Chicago Cubs because... Major League Baseball would not let us use the name Cubs because there's gambling in the movie. Not gambling amongst the players, but the fans would bet, you know, whether the guy got a strike or a ball or a hit or whatever. So we lost that gamble. So the movie came out, and uh, it's about the Chicago Bruins, which, of course, pissed off everybody in Chicago. And we got horrible reviews because they thought we were doing a disservice. I My hands were tied. I couldn't get the permission from Major League Baseball. We couldn't call the team the Cubs, and we couldn't call it Wrigley Field. So it was the Chicago Bruins in Lakeside Park it's a good movie by the way it's a fun movie and it shows up from time to time but it got me started on a producing career in the following year i did a true world war ii drama for the hallmark channel called silent night which was based on a true incident in world war ii where on Christmas Eve, 1944, in the middle of the Battle of the Bulge, German troops and American troops were in a cabin and a German woman held a truce for 12 hours. And they broke bread together, they sang songs, and they left as friends in the morning. The woman we hired, we hired Linda Hamilton, obviously the Terminator movies. And she was wonderful in the role. And we were nominated for four Canadian Television Academy Awards. So that was good. And then ever since then, uh, I've been rotating between writing books about film and television and then also moving my feature and uh, you know television projects forward as best as I can. It's a tough market right now because of the COVID.
0: And I know you've done a lot of documentaries about movies as well. I have.
1: I have a particular love of the 1963 Steve McQueen film, The Great Escape. That's kind of my desert island film. <laughs> I, I have to date back to when I was 12 years old. I was riding my little Schwinn Stingray in in uh, Palms near Culver City. And I'm at this traffic light, and I hear a voice, can you tell me where MGM Studios is? And I turn around, and it was Steve McQueen in a red Ferrari. <laughs> and I'm sitting in a traffic light on my Schwinn talking to Steve McQueen about <laughs> slot cars. Because I was on my way to a slot car track. You guys had slot car tracks, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, Yeah, back in the day. That was a big thing in Southern California. So... I always remember that. And I just love McQueen. I mean, he's my all-time favorite actor, and I've seen The Great Escape probably three hundred times. And it just got me into the whole movie thing. Of course, my, I grew up with a mother who was really into movies, and my dad was also into movies. And plus, for about six years, we lived across the street from a movie theater. So how could that not inspire you? <laughs> and but by the way, that the one you did about The Great Escape is called the coolest guy movie ever. The Coolest Guy Movie Ever. It's available uh, on Amazon. I, I teamed up with a French filmmaker who had taken a camera crew to all the sites in Germany where they had made the original movie, The Great Escape, and then he compared them to how it looked in the movie. And it's actually quite a fascinating piece. Uh, I came up with the title. I said, The Great Escape is the coolest guy movie ever. So <laughs> so that worked out nicely. <laughs> Just fell right into place. didn't take much thought, right? Bang. Instant, thought. Thought. Instant title. Instant <laughs> title. Exactly. Yeah.
0: yeah. Also want to mention that Steve is the founder and president of Fast Carrier Pictures, and that's your production company that creates
1: documentaries Correct. and... We're uh, we're currently developing uh, with producer Arthur Friedman. We have the rights to a really terrific uh, biography of Audie Murphy, the World War II hero. The book is called No Name on the Bullet. Our plan is to make an 8 to 10 part uh, limited television series on the life of Audie Murphy. And for your listeners who don't know who that is, he was the, the most decorated soldier for combat action I'm pretty sure in the history of the United States, definitely World War II, and he won 33 medals. And uh, he became a movie star after the war and made like 38 Westerns for Universal. He was in a lot of movies. He was suffering from PTSD, which we call today, which, of course, in those days, they Talk. They didn't call it that. But it's a fascinating story. So we're developing it as a limited television series. But I've also gotten heavily into comedy writing. I'm, I'm really, I, I, I'm writing with a gentleman named Billy Reback, who is one of the original writer-producers on Home Improvement, wrote for a lot of the Disney Channel shows and Murphy Brown. And we've teamed up to try to get some good comedies going that are not really raunchy. I find that a lot of American comedy films go for the easy joke And I think that uh, we're trying to get some fun stuff going. That's not exact, you know, not not as raunchy.
0: The first guest I've ever said this to. This isn't your first encyclopedia that you've written. (laughs)
1: That's true. That's well. This is actually the fourth edition of the James Bond movie encyclopedia. I wrote the first one in 1990. I was approached by uh, contemporary books of Chicago. Uh, They had had success with the Marilyn Monroe Encyclopedia and the Elvis Presley Encyclopedia. So they they knew about my interest in Bond because I had written another book uh, back in the 80s called the James Bond Films, a behind the scenes history, which was the first book to explore the making of the Bond movies. So they asked me to do the encyclopedia. And uh, this is now the fourth edition. The James Bond movie encyclopedia comes out comes out in November. But I also wrote the Twilight Zone Encyclopedia, because I I, I was looking around for a project. As you can imagine, getting movies and television shows off the ground is very challenging in many ways. And you you can literally wait years before any action develops. So I I was going crazy. I said, I got to write something. I had to get something going. So I loved the original Twilight Zone, the original Black and Whites. Mm -hmm. And uh, I became very friendly with Carol Serling, the widow of Rod Serling, so she opened up her cabinets to me, and I was able to get a lot of the information for her, as well as photographs. And I find encyclopedias are, are fun books to write because it's not, you're not writing so much for them to read cover to cover. You're ri- writing for them to jump in and revel in certain things that they're interested in. And if they're watching an episode with Burgess Meredith called uh, Time Enough at Last, they can look up Time Enough at Last, and I give them some information. If they want information about Burgess Meredith, I give information about Burgess Meredith. The, all the key casts are in the book. It's filled with um, all sorts of minutiae. But uh, the most important part is you learn about the people who were in the movies or in the shows. I mean, a lot of these actors were wonderful actors of the 50s and 60s. That are, are uh, most of them most of them have passed, and it's important to to keep uh, information available so people can learn more about these people because they're they're part of the fabric of our of our history.
0: And you started watching The Twilight Zone when you were a little kid.
1: Well, I had a kind of a strange experience. Um, <laughs> you know, let's see. The Twilight Zone goes on the air in October '59, so I was eight years old. I wasn't watching a lot of dramatic television in those days. I was eight years old, so I was watching a lot of cartoons, and then starting to watch some of the westerns that were popping up, which were, you know, pretty kid friendly. One night, I wandered into the living room, and my parents were watching The Twilight Zone, and they were watching an episode called "The Silence." It takes place in this private club where this obnoxious guy is challenged by this senior member of the club that you got to stop talking. I'll bet you a half a million dollars you can't shut up for a whole year. Well, I'm watching this and I'm thinking to myself, not talking for a whole year, it totally freaked me out. And I left the room and never came back. And I never watched The Twilight Zone until years later when it went into reruns. <laughs> it was just too freaky for me. I was an only child. I was freaked out by everything in those days. I I, I told you we lived across the street from a movie theater. Yeah. Well, Saturday matinees in those days usually featured horror movies. And it took me a long time before I could have enough courage to actually watch a horror movie. I like the science fiction stuff because it was cooler you know spaceships and ray guns and robots but my friends insisted to go to see the spook movies the horror movies and I, I just couldn't take it it took me a while to get i mean i remember i remember going to see the brain from the planet eris uh which was a 50s sci-fi movie on a rainy day and all day i i i, I saw that brain in the air It was freaky <laughs> With Rod Serling, he seemed to
0: be a pretty interesting guy. I know he did a lot of battling with the networks, with what he could write and what he couldn't write. And even a lot of the episodes of The Twilight Zone, they really weren't sci-fi, but he was really kind of trying to make other points like about social issues.
1: Rod Serling wore his emotion on his sleeve. He was very, very determined to tell stories of the moral condition of the human race in any way, shape, or form. And that was literally the last thing that the networks wanted. Back in the 50s, during the era of live television, they were pretty much run by the sponsors. You know, Ford, if uh, let's say, if Chevrolet was sponsoring a, a Western, the cavalry commander could not say, "I'm going to ford that river." It was against the law. I mean, stupid things like that. And and the real straw that broke the camel's back for Rod was he wanted to tell the Emmett Till story, which is a very controversial story of the '50s of a young black man in the South who was whistling at a white woman. I guess he wolf whistled one night. He was literally attacked and hanged and in the, in the, and hung in this in that in the, in the town. This is the Emmett Till story, and literally a television executive said to him, you can tell the story, Rod, but you got to make him a Mexican. And Rod Serling was so outraged. He just stopped. He realized that the writing was on the wall. Now, interestingly, live television was ending and film television was moving to the West Coast. So he decided to invent the Twilight Zone to tell moral stories without having to uh, worry about the scrutinization he would get. So they looked like science fiction, but many of the stories were, T- stories of the human condition disguised as science fiction. They dealt with anti Semitism. They dealt with racism. They dealt with uh, child abuse. They dealt with murder. All sorts of stories that you had trouble dealing with in, in, on the networks. I mean, he had the first episode dealing with the Vietnam War in Praise of Pip. He had the first one dealing with the Holocaust in a series format, uh, which was Deaths Head Revisited. He he was amazingly successful. He wrote ninety-two of those hundred and fifty-six episodes. Let's talk a little bit about the uh, the Bond movie encyclopedia. And now I, I I have to I have to ask you again: Is this is it really true? You've never seen a James Bond movie.
0: Out of the 24 that have been released, I have not seen one of them. So this is educational for me. I'm glad that you're the guy I get to talk to about this.
1: Well, if I go back to 1963, which is interesting, in the same year as The Great Escape was released, my father came home from a business trip and my dad used to bring home Westerns. And I didn't, I, I never wanted to read Westerns. I had no interest in reading Westerns, uh, forget it. But then one day he threw a paperback on my desk and, and I said, he said, you should read this. And I said, well, what is it? And the title was Goldfinger. All I remember about the cover it was one of those signet paperbacks, which is, by the way, reproduced in my new encyclopedia, the cover. It had a naked woman all in gold on the cover. I mean, she was obviously covered up in certain ways, but uh, it, I think it was the first time in life anybody handed me anything with naked on it. <laughs> so I was like 11. So uh, I read it, and, and I noticed that my classmates in junior high, uh, that we called it junior high in those days, not middle school, mm-hmm. they all had these paperbacks. They were very colorful covers. So uh, Bond was a kind of a big thing. And then they released the first two James Bond movies, uh, Dr. No and from Russia with love with very little fanfare. They were simply action movies that United Artists was releasing. They weren't big Hollywood premieres. They weren't delivered with a lot of hoopla, but they were pretty successful. But the real hoopla came in 1964 Uh, It had been revealed by a Look magazine journalist named Hugh Sidey. He was talking about uh, JFK's reading list, and on his reading list of what the president of the United States was reading was From Russia With Love. So it was kind of interesting. It was kind of a big boon to paperback sales. It started to build a little bit. And then when Goldfinger was released at Christmas 64, it was a big deal. It was like the release of Star Wars or The Avengers. I had read the book. So this is me going to see the movie now. And the movie was so cool. I mean, the introduction of the Aston Martin sports car with the modifications. This is a movie that features one of the great gadgets of all time that James Bond is handed by his Q branch, the quartermaster, a sports car with machine guns, oil slick, uh, a smoke screens, revolving number plates, uh, the first GPS decades before it was introduced. Um, it was just such a huge thing. And so I, I really got into the Bond movies. And uh, let's see, the following year, 65, because they were coming out like almost every year. And in uh, Christmas 65, exactly a year later, they released Thunderball, which was a big underwater adventure about nuclear hijackings. And this actor who was in these early James Bond movies, Sean Connery, was just so cool. It's interesting because, you know, as I mentioned, I follow the Steve McQueen and the Great Escape thing. Connery and McQueen have similar trajectories. Connery's born in 1930, McQueen's born in 1930. They break out in 63, McQueen with The Great Escape, Sean Connery with the first James Bond movies. They, they, They had parallel careers for a while, although Steve unfortunately died at age 50. Sean is, I think, turned 90 this year, so... He's still hanging in there, although he's retired from acting, but Connery was the ultimate cool bird I mean he really he really sold the character of this cool secret agent, and the women, oh my God, Jim, the women in this series are. I can't even describe them sometimes. They're the most beautiful women in the world in various stages of undress. So for a young teenager, (laughs) it was just, oh my God, what is this all about? (laughs) (laughs) Better than the book. (laughs) Better than the books, exactly. I think they turned turned young boys into men and old men back into boys. It was just (laughs) that kind of situation. But they had a great effect on me. And then over the years, I realized that writing about World War II movies and uh, classic science fiction films of the 50s was okay, but I was reaching a fairly small audience. With Bond, I was able to reach a really big audience. Uh, Bond is, now it's 2020. I mean, Bond movies have been around for almost 60 years. It's it's a phenomenon. And uh, it's sad because we, we don't have the new Bond movie yet. It's been postponed once again. It's supposed to come in April, 2021. Uh, I'm hoping it does, because I hear it's going to be the last Daniel Craig. And by the way, he is terrific. You know, over the years, as you'll discover, as you eventually watch these movies, which I will guarantee that you will (laughs) after our talk. Uh, you go from Sean Connery, and then um, he got tired of making the Bond movies. Uh, they were t- the long schedules. Now, on one of his breaks, he made a film with Alfred Hitchcock called Marnie, which was successful. And he got a little taste of working with great directors. So he wanted to get away from the Bonds. So they brought in George Lazenby, who was an Australian model who literally lied his way onto the audition by saying he'd made a bunch of films in Eastern Europe. He lied about everything, but he looked good. And Lazenby looked like Bond. Uh, although he gave the director a heart attack when he told him he had no acting experience. So it was a very challenging opportunity. And uh, they made a film in 1969 called Honor Majesty's Secret Service, which I consider one of the better produced Bond films of all time. And Lazenby's very good. And considering he had had no acting experience, he's very natural on camera. But he decided not to continue. He was given one of the worst pieces of advice from his agent at that time who said that Bond is over. It's done. It's now the 70s. Bond is over. So he walked away from the James Bond series. And they had to scramble. They brought Sean back for one more. And then they brought in what we call the Roger Moore era. Roger Moore from The Saints did seven Bond films. And then uh, he retired and was replaced by Timothy Dalton, who did two. And then Pierce Brosnan, who did four. And now we're in about to see the fifth Daniel Craig. So we're 25 films in, which is an amazing run for a series. And then the movies are fun to write about because there's a lot of color, not only the women. And obviously my book is filled with gorgeous color photographs of these women but the gadgets, the villains, all that stuff.
0: It, it is very thoroughly covered. I got to tell you guys, if, if you are checking this book out, it was, it was quite the read. I was you know, going through, I mean, I can't read it in the encyclopedia. <laughs> it was a 400-page book. But yeah, with the detail that you've got and everything covered, I mean, every movie is discussed from Dr. No, actually pre-Dr. No through uh, No Time to Die which is yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, a lot of people don't realize that before Sean Connery made his debut as Sean as James Bond Barry Nelson the American actor had appeared on television in 1954 in a television version of Casino Royale where actually James Bond is portrayed as an American agent which was like kind of funny and it's uh, it has all the um, you know the inadequacies of looking at a live television show from 1954 but it is a bit of a trivial Pursuit question about who was the first James Bond and, and Barry Nelson was it. And Peter Lorre played the villain? Peter Lorre played the villain, exactly. Mr. Bond. <laughs> <laughs> that was my attempt anyway. <laughs> that was a good one. I, I, I'm impressed. <laughs> do you <laughs> do any you more so. impressions? <laughs> if I get loose up, we'll, we'll see what else comes up. <laughs> just, so, uh, just, uh, all you need to do is uh, just, say who are, just say, who are you? <laughs> Say it. Go ahead. Hi, oh, bon, James bon. James Bond. <laughs> <laughs>
0: There's a lot of interesting little tidbits about the movies and they were you know packed in with all the facts and stuff like that. Like I didn't know that Ian Fleming took the name James Bond because it was the name of an ornithologist on a book.
1: Ian Fleming uh, was a newspaper writer, a columnist for a British prominent British newspaper and he would take his vacations in Jamaica every year, the tropics. On his coffee table was a book called Birds of the of the West Indies by James Bond, who was an American ornithologist from Philadelphia. That's where we got the name Bond from. And I I found another fact in one of the British newspapers that said that when he, back in the day, before he became a journalist, he used to take a bus in London or from where to where, I'm not sure, but it was the 007 bus. So when they came time to give him his, his number, 007. <laughs> there you go. The, the, the stars were lining right up for all this, I guess. Ian Fleming. And Ian Fleming was an interesting guy. I mean, during World War II, he was a naval intelligence officer. So he was running spy capers on the mainland of occupied France with, in, with a lot of the people who would later inspire the actions of James Bond. Uh, he was, in a way, uh, his own James Bond character. kind of like He was actually kind of like an m who was the spy master who basically put James on his missions.
0: Fleming never appeared in any of the Bond movies?
1: Did he ever do like a... He visited the sets... Uh, the first James Bond movie was released in the fall of 62 in England. He sadly died in August of 1964. So there are photos of him visiting Dr. No from Russia with Love and Goldfinger. He never was in them. Uh, There is an actor in England named Ian Fleming, but it's a different person.
0: You know, I found it kind of interesting that a lot of people felt that the Bond movies were a little sexist. But actually, for a long period of time, the producer has been a woman, Barbara Broccoli.
1: Right. Uh, Barbara's the daughter of Albert R. Broccoli, who back in 1961 acquired the rights to the James Bond films with another producer named Harry Saltzman. And when Harry got into some trouble with Technicolor, it was some stocks back in 74, he sold those rights to MGM. So MGM and Broccoli are partners. And then when Albert R. Broccoli retired, Barbara Broccoli took over the the reins with her uh, stepbrother, Michael Wilson, and they've been running the Bond empire ever since.
0: Which one was your favorite Bond movie? Would it be the first one that you saw or is there anyone that...
1: Yes, well, Goldfinger over the years to me has been the... Kind of, uh, it's it just has all the ingredients I loved about James Bond: the action, the adventure, the crazy story, the great villain, the beautiful women, the classic lines, the repartee. But I will say this: that in two thousand six, when I saw the first Daniel Craig Casino Royale, I was just blown away at how good Daniel Craig was as James Bond, and he's been great in every one of the films. Uh, so, uh, I would say right now, I'd say Goldfinger and Casino Royale are pretty even in terms of my favorites. And is is Connery your favorite Bond? Connery's my favorite Bond. You know, he always will be. I I just always loved Connery and and all the things he's done. I mean, even when he, even when he wasn't James Bond, he was terrific. I, I, I think he, he won the Oscar for the Untouchables, with Kevin Costner, and he played Jimmy Malone. He was terrific in that. I loved him in *The Wind and the Lion*. He's done so many wonderful films. He's actually very funny as uh, Harrison Ford's father in the Indiana Jones movie. Junior. <laughs> <laughs> No, yeah, they just pop out every
0: once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> You've been warned, Steve. The Roger Moore era, I guess, you kind of had like the way that a lot of the stuff was written. You kind of had a a different kind of view on his movies than than the Connery movies. They they got a oh, little right.
1: too far fetched. Roger brought a lightness to the Bond character. I think that, uh, and I, you know, at first you say, "How outrageous can they turn James Bond into a light comedian?" But those movies were very successful, uh, especially the Spy Who Loved Me in 1977, featuring that wonderful Carly Simon song. They they were big action adventure films on a big big canvas, and basically they uh, they brought huge new audiences into the cinema, a new generation. These are the younger people who had not grown up on Connery. So you can't knock Roger Moore's effect. He was really just a wonderful, wonderful boost to the box office for the series. And um, I think one of my favorite films of his is Octopussy, which on the surface seems like a real goofy movie. In fact, at one point in the movie, Roger Moore dresses up like a circus clown to deactivate an A-bomb. I I couldn't think of anything more but it's very effective, and it's uh, a blend of uh, good writing and John Glenn's direction. And then Roger comes across very credibly as this secret agent put in an impossible situation. Okay,
0: and uh, you know, you mentioned the uh, the Carly Simon song from "Despite You Love Me." We got to talk a little bit about the Bond music. I know that John Barry was doing the uh, the main theme, but I was surprised to find that only one. Bond song hit number one on the
1: charts. I know some of them came close and it was Duran Duran of You to a Kill. Right, right. I don't you know, I'm not quite sure why some of them didn't go higher. Um movie soundtracks sometimes are huge. I mean Saturday Night Fever was one of the biggest soundtrack albums of all time, still selling over the years. Uh not sure why the more of them didn't reach number one. Um the Bond music is an, another thing. After 25 films, it's kind of a, a history of American music going from the brassy Shirley Basie tunes from Goldfinger to, as you mentioned, Duran, Duran. And then uh, uh, we've got the young uh, the young singer whose name just flew out of my mind now. You know Billy, who it is. Billie Eilish. Billie Eilish, you know, she's the youngest singer ever to do a Bond song. And she has this kind of wispy, little ethereal voice. And it's actually very effective in the new movie. That's one thing we have seen, even though we obviously haven't seen the movie. We've at least heard the music. And uh, Barry was great, though. Barry's soundtracks uh, were were just uh, delicious in terms of their scope. And John Barry music is really... uh, some of the best film music ever done. And he's responsible, by the way, for the Bond theme, even though Monty Norman is credited. it I think the producers wanted it to be augmented, and he went into his own litany of instrumentals and brought out that pluck guitar, that dun 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 That's John Barry, and John Barry deserves a lot of credit for that.
0: Yeah. You know, it was funny, back to the song, I would think that Live and Let Die would have been the... The number one, but it actually peaked at number two. And then I found out that uh, Cubby Broccoli and Harry Swellsman actually wanted to
1: produce A Hard Day's Night, but that never materialized. Well, actually, they were offered the uh, the Beatles movie, and they turned it down, and they didn't think it was worth doing. I, I don't think Harry Saltzman and Albert Broccoli were necessarily very music hip at that time. If Barbara Broccoli had been offered it back in 65, I think she would have grabbed it with both hands. But no, her dad just didn't believe there was anything in those Beatles movies, and that's unfortunate. But they, I think they had their hands full with Bond Okay. Um, I want to talk a little bit
0: about your favorite Bond, Sean Connery. Now, he actually did one of the Bond movies twice, just under different titles. Is it Thunderbolt and Never Say Never Again?
1: They're they're actually basically the same movie? To make a long story short, when Ian Fleming was trying to sell his Bond novels for the first time, he wasn't getting a lot of interest, and he met a young film producer named Kevin McClory, and Kevin looked at all of the books that he had done uh, up to then and wasn't that impressed with them. He said he, he wanted to do, do something on a movie level that would be much more cinematic and much more worldwide thread, etc. So he uh, teamed up with a writer named Jack Whittingham, and he and Fleming and McClory came up with a story called Latitude 78 West, which was about an A-bomb hijacking. From uh, in, in The story was very wide-ranging and a lot of energy in it, but they couldn't sell it. Nobody wanted to pick up a Bond series at that time. Nobody wanted to Uh, they wanted an actor under contract for seven years and no actor wanted to jump into something that was unknown. So it fell apart and Ian Fleming did something very, very bad. He went off and wrote a novel called Thunderball and did not credit either McClory or Whittingham. So there was a big lawsuit in the High Court of London which some people consider part of the reason that Fleming eventually died because he put so much energy into this court case, which he lost. and He lost all the film rights to Thunderball. So Kevin McClory ended up making a deal with Albert Broccoli and Harry Saltzman to make Thunderball because he couldn't get an independent movie off the ground now that Sean Connery had established himself as James Bond. He, in his contract, he said he would not make another Bond movie for 10 years. Now, McClory had various versions of Thunderball in his own mind's eye thought could be made into multiple Bond movies. So promptly 10 years after Thunderball was released in 65, in 1975, he announced a movie called James Bond of the Secret Service. Now, Cubby Broccoli was still very active in the series, which of course has always been around. And they they started a war against each other. And um, McClory for eight years was unable to get anything going until 1983, or actually 1982, he met a producer named Jack Schwartzman, who was married to Talia Shire, the lady from the Rocky movies. Mm -hmm. And Jack had his own production company. He was a seasoned lawyer and producer. And he figured out that McClory did have the rights, but it was essentially just a remake of Thunderball. Still involved A-bomb hijackings instead of a nuclear bomber. It was cruise missiles. Same basic story, but Sean came back. And he he came back in '83 and was in the movie Never Say Never Again.
0: And I read a story. I'm not sure if it is in your encyclopedia that when Connery was doing martial arts training for a movie, he got his wrist broken by his trainer, who turned out to be
1: Steven Seagal. Is that true, or is that one of those Hollywood? Maybe one of those stories. That's definitely not in my book, Sean. To my knowledge, over the course of his seven films, I do not believe he was injured. Roger got into some scrapes, and, and Daniel Craig may be the most injured of all the Bonds because he's he broke a A broken ankle, he got his face smashed, lost a couple teeth. Uh, His movies, if you watch the Daniel Craig movies, they've been inspired a lot by the Jason Bourne movies, the Mission Impossible movies. They're very visceral and they're very hard edged they're much different than uh, a lot of the other Bond movies. So you feel every punch, you feel, uh, feel every you know physical activity. And I think that uh, because they're so rough, I'm not surprised that the actor was injured.
0: When you were putting the book together, what do you think was probably one of the more interesting facts that you that really just kind of said, well, wow, I would not have expected to write about this. Did you have any specific stories? Well, I
1: did or... put in the book a story I heard from um, a, a screenwriter uh, who worked with Gregory Ratoff? Gregory Ratoff was a contract actor with Fox in the 1950s who did a lot of traveling, and he got the rights to Casino Royale. The f- he was the first producer to actually acquire film rights to a James Bond novel. He brought it over to Fox, and they literally, according to the screenwriter, they, they literally were going to make it a vehicle for Susan Hayward to play a lady agent. So there's a possibility that we could have had James Bond introduced as a woman, which was pretty outrageous. um, But I I have it on good authority because the writer who I, I, I interviewed, whose name escapes me at the moment, he worked with Gregory Ratoff on that project.
0: So you think there's still a possibility that could be like a Jane
1: Bond in the future? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think they're going to stick with James Bond. And uh, there have been a lot of other opportunities for female action heroes uh, these days. In fact, it seems like every other movie has a female action hero. In it. We're, not, we're not at a loss for female action heroes, that's for sure.
0: <laughs> that's true. Okay. I want to throw a couple of quick questions at you, because I'm sure you've definitely got your favorites.
1: Who's your favorite Bond villain? That would also be the first Bond villain I saw, Goldfinger. I thought uh, uh, Gert Gert Frobe's Oric Goldfinger was just just bigger than life, but still pretty much a human being. He wasn't one of these megalomaniac crazy guys. I mean, he's just obsessed with gold and wanting to increase his gold supply. And he's just uh, a wonderful character actor, was revoiced, so it's not his voice in the movie. But uh, Goldfinger, all the levels are very high, and certainly that villain was great.
0: Okay. What about uh this is probably a tricky one? Favorite Bond girl? Or or well, even Bond villain, if either one.
1: Well, that's easy. Um, uh, Thunderballs Claudine Auger, who played Domino, who's just uh maybe the most beautiful woman I've ever seen in the movies. I mean, just absolutely gorgeous. Okay. Favorite Bond theme? Favorite Bond theme. That's a very good question. Um, gotta go back to Goldfinger, Shirley Bassey. You know, that's definitely right up there. Favorite Bond vehicle. Aston Martin, DB5, Goldfinger. <laughs> it's so funny how Goldfinger, 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 except for the woman, uh, Claudine Auger from Thunderbolt. But yeah, no, the I mean, that Aston Martin, you got a picture of 64. We had never seen cars like that before. I mean, there was just something about seeing that gleaming silver sports car with all these uh, gadgets that just blew us away. I mean, uh, pretty cool.
0: I read somewhere that they they said Daniel Craig, that he could drive at Aston Martin whenever he wanted to, that they gave him his choice of of using that
1: I'm not worried about Daniel Craig. I mean <laughs> from the money he's made on these movies, he could probably buy Aston Martin. I mean <laughs> uh, I also heard that this year they they had thirteen of the original um not the original, but they built thirteen brand new aston martin d b is based on the nineteen sixty four chassis. so it's essentially the James Bond, Aston Martin. I think they're at three million apiece. so if you got you guys out there have any extra spare money there's there you go, although I think they've already been sold. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, so you said that uh, this is gonna be Daniel Craig's last movies bond. So
1: who in your opinion do you think would be the best next bond? Isn't that the $64,000 question? <laughs> um, I heard that they're now thinking of offering Bond to the guy who plays Superman, Henry Cavill. Exactly. I, 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 he sounds like he could be a good choice. Interestingly, he played Napoleon Solo in the Man from U.N.C.L.E. movies, So it's not far afield from him. There are a number of actors out there. Um, it's a really good question. I, I'm not 100% sure who it should be. It should probably be an unknown. Because I think they constantly have to reboot the series. Daniel Craig was virtually unknown when he got the role. I think it, it behooves them to get somebody who has not kind of identified with another role. Now, Henry's uh, Henry's Superman is, is there, but I don't know. I, I think he would probably be a good Bond. Um, maybe you and I should try out. <laughs>
0: I'll have to work on my impressions then, right? (laughs) Don't have to sound Scottish.
1: (laughs) I think you have to have some sort of Commonwealth affiliation. So I think you and I being Americans, we're we're not going to do it. Although I always joke that one of the first casting articles about Bond was that Jimmy Stewart was being considered. And I always joke that uh, how did he sound when he introduced himself? Uh, Oh, my name is Bond, Bond, James Bond. Shark or not shark? So, what else do we have to
0: keep an eye out for you, Stephen? For any future projects, I know apart from the Audie Murphy.
1: Well, I've got a uh, animated feature I've developed with my good friend David Lee Miller. It was published. Uh, an aspect of it was published as a children's picture book last year. It's as an in, interesting history. It's called The Cat Who Lived with Anne Frank. And it's the story of the attic in Amsterdam and of the Jews hiding there. But it's all told from the point of view of the little cat that also lived in the attic for two years. And there really was a cat in the attic. His name was Mushi. And the book came out. And now we've developed an animated feature which takes the story outside the attic. And we see what happens with Mushi. He actually joins the animal resistance Against the Nazis. And in our story, the Nazis are symbolized by their German Shepherd and Rottweiler dogs that patrol the canals. So it's, uh, as we say, it's a movie, it's an American tale meets inglorious bastards. (laughs) I like it. Very unique. Very unique. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Well,
0: I'd like to say thank you so much for coming on here and definitely check out the James Bond movie encyclopedia because it is up to date. Well, the newest version that's coming out will be up to date. And you will learn a lot, as I did, today. considering a person who's never seen a Bond movie.
1: I think I'm going to have to email you the minute I
0: sit down and say, guess what I'm doing
1: now? You know what you need to do, Jim? You need to go find Dr. No. Start from the beginning. As Julie Andrews says in The Sound of Music, it's best to start at the very beginning. (laughs) (laughs) And yes, start with Dr. No. You'll find it to be kind of, You know, a little low key, not too crazy, but you'll see Sean and how he first appeared. And then you'll go on to From Russia With Love, which is darker and more interesting. And then Goldfinger. Just uh, I would just like to see you watch those first three.
0: Rebels, his name is Ruben, Stephen J. Ruben. He's been my guest. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Steve. Thank you. Hello there, Bulls. It's me, Jim the Podcast chirpa, interrupting my own podcast to let you know about another podcast that I've worked on. It's a little miniseries, five episodes, called Too Many 80s Songs, and I didn't work on it alone. I got a lot of help with my buddy, Uncle Bruce. You know him better as Mr. Bruce, but it's Uncle Bruce and me, Jim the Podcast chirpa. With the five-part podcast called Too Many 80s Songs, and we talk about what else 80s songs, and it's just a lot of unscripted conversation, a lot of silliness, a little trivia, and a lot of music, so please check it out. New episodes debut Monday for five weeks through January and February, and you can hear all those songs exclusively on Spotify. That's the only place that's playing the Too Many 80s Songs show. Little hint. If you don't get to hear the songs in their entirety on Spotify, check my social media, Pollution, on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook for the link to all the songs that we included and some that we didn't. If you're a big fan of 80s music and you've got a special 80s request or dedication, send it to me. And if we get enough requests, we're going to come back and do a special request and dedication show. Hope you listen. Hope you enjoy it so much. La Be a rebel. Follow the show at Sherpa Pollution on
1: Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.
0: Thanks a lot for listening, Rebels. And thanks so much to Stephen Rubin for coming on down to the Sherpa screening room and spending a little time talking about his book. Please check it out. Really interesting. I still haven't seen a Bond movie yet. Really, I'm not kidding. I know you people are going to start messaging me on social media at Sherpa Lution and saying, why? Why not? Why Sherpa? I don't know. I'm not a bond denier or anything like that. And by the way, this interview was recorded a few weeks before the passing of Sean Connery. So unfortunately, we didn't get the chance to really talk that much about his passing. But I know that Steve was a huge fan and I really respect Mr. Connery as an actor. And he's definitely left a powerful legacy behind him. And there's a lot there to be treasured. So thank you, Mr. Connery, and thank you, Mr. Rubin, and thank you, Mr. Rebels, for coming on down and listening to the interview. So don't forget to check us next time, and we are on all your favorite podcast apps or on my website, SherpaLution.com, and check out the website. You know, there's some fun things going on over there. You can see the link to the Sherpa shop or... There are over 100 websites, and you can do a little bit of online shopping. I know the holidays are over, but that's okay. Buy something for yourself. Go crazy. As long as you don't get into too much trouble. Anyway, I got to get out of here. Bruce, Mr. Bruce, if you can please show everyone the door. Well, I know that was a horrible impression, but hey, I'm working on it, guys. I'm really working on it. So I will see you guys next time and... Viva la Sherpa
1: Thanks for listening to the Sherpa Screening Room. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast. I'm Mr. Bruce, and this has been a Sherpa Loose Studios production. Viva la Sherpa Pollution!